In a world of podcasts about movies, sci-fi, TV, and podcasts about sci-fi, TV, and movies, two women chose to add their voices to the fray. Two sisters. One woman was willing to go to any length to explain away plot holes and bad pacing. I don't think, first of all, much like the entirety of this film, I don't think we're supposed to ask a lot of questions. The other, though, had no such sympathies. Oh, I hate it. I hate it. Together, they joined forces to highlight the good, the bad, and the truly bizarre. This is See You Next Week in Space. of a conundrum Ames because I have I have like kind of two opening questions so I guess I will just ask you how you would prefer would you prefer to discuss what you know about black holes or I don't I don't choose that one because I knew that was going to be a question and I did not look it up and I don't know okay next one um okay well we'll see uh what are your takes on hell. Oh, I definitely want to do that one. <laughs> okay. Um, well, then. I feel like I definitely have more opinions about hell than I do about black holes. Okay. Um, so what are your thoughts about hell? Is it real? Are we both going there? Who oh. else will be there? Okay. Oh, uh, this, I mean, good thing our audience is not too big because I feel like my opinions could be polarizing. Um, <laughs> I think, I think. On the one hand, assuredly, we're both going there. Um, on the other what? hand, I'd... speak for yourself, wait, jerk. Wait, <laughs> wait. On the other hand, I don't believe in it, so don't worry. Like, oh, okay, that's cool then. I don't I have, believe in it either. Yeah, like on the one hand, like if 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 what we're told in religion. Like equals good and bad, hell, heaven and hell. Yes, we're definitely going. But, but like, what are the reasons you and I are going? Oh, I don't know. Sins. What's that? But you know, this we've done sins. The sin of not believing, I guess, is one. Oh um, yeah, that is a pretty basic <laughs> sin. But I you suppose. know what? That's what's <laughs> silly about the whole heaven hell thing because the sin of not believing would therefore mean you don't believe in hell. So therefore, why would you? use the threat of me going to hell as a reason to believe because then if I believe then I have to also believe in hell I don't know it's all it's all kind of crazy but I also believe if there's a hell the more fun people are there right so I'm okay with it yeah I mean that's sort of my yeah but I also don't believe in it so it's (laughs) it's hard to I don't have a great um I don't have a great well, answer, but maybe a better question to ask then is, what do you think hell looks like? Mm. Uh, the end of this movie, I guess. <laughs> like, <laughs> it looks like a big pile of flames with like a weird <gasps> robot man on top. Uh, um, cool. It looks like a, a fiery burning pit, right? I mean, I think that's well, the. Y- I mean, that's the traditional understanding. To me, hell would be a baby shower. 
That's true. I mean, the different versions take. of hell. Yes. Right. Yeah, my hell would or, be... Ooh, or sure. a camping trip. <laughs> okay, fair enough. Um, I'm trying to think what my hell would be. There's lots of things. Because, uh, now just to be clear, I have gone on camping trips and enjoyed them, but that's because I always knew that they were ending. Well, <laughs> of course, anything that's going to go on forever really could become hell, right? Anything yeah. that's like... Even, I'm really trying to think what my version of hell would be. I feel like I've said it before. My Probably. Version of- <laughs> Surely it would just be like a world having of to go into your office. Oh, yeah. Work. Yeah, totally. Like, <laughs> a, like, a, like an, a never-ending work day. Like, just constant emails, constant emails with the same dumb questions. It's pretty much what my 9 to 5 is like anyway. So it would just right. be extended. Yeah, I guess that's what it would be for me. I think there's yeah. other stuff too. Probably, if you really thought about it, you could like come actually, up with something more creative. But actually, actually, like being in <laughs> in like a, a an awkward <laughs> social situation. Not even ha- it doesn't mm. even have to be awkward, actually, but a social situation that doesn't ever end. That would be <laughs> that would be tough for me too. Fair, like totally a never-ending party. That sounds crazy, but like, I mean, you don't even like parties, so correct. That's what I'm saying. So a never-ending one would be sort of hellish to me. Fair, and that, um, but I recognize it. For most people, that sounds nuts. Well, I think anyone would agree that a never-ending party, like parties, are fun because they're like there's a end point. <laughs> Like, and it's like, enjoy this time. (laughs) Yeah. um, Well, and again, so I guess that means anything could become hell, right? Like too much of anything becomes a bad thing. Yes. Um, So hello, everyone. (laughs) Welcome to See You Next Week in Space. Uh, Well, we do often end up talking about weird metaphysical things in this show, um, I don't know that we've as fully explored what we think hell would be like before this, um, but I am Sarah Walsh. I'm here with my co-host and sister, Amy Walsh. And Amy, why are we talking about hell today? You know, we just thought it would be a fun, jaunty thing to talk about. Um, really lifts also, the spirits. Yeah, we thought we'd like give everybody a nice little weekend feeling talking about hell. Um, but also because we watched the movie from 1979 called The Black Hole, and Mm -hmm. I chose not to talk about black holes because I feel like my, um, understanding of a black hole is, uh, at best, not good. (laughs) (laughs) Fair. Um, and we will get to it, but there is a part in a movie called The Black Hole that takes us to what appears to be hell. Mm-hmm. So we'll get there. And so that's that's the inspiration for my opening salvo. <laughs> um, so it, I actually did, I now have open on my computer the Wikipedia page about black holes if we need it okay. at some point. So just... I, I mean, <laughs> I probably should have looked it up myself. I just chose not to, but... I knew it would be a thing because as they talked about black holes constantly in this movie, I was like, I 
feel like I should know more about what the real science of this is, but I didn't even bother. That's totally fine. And it actually is an interesting kind of... There's another movie that I've had on our list that I think we should save for like Halloween season that is also about black hole stuff called Event Horizon. Oh no. That actually I, think I know what that is and I feel like it's bad. Um <laughs> I I liked it. Anyway, we're getting off topic. Know. Uh but so <laughs> black holes ha- unsurprisingly um have formed the kind of backbone to various science fiction stories for a long mm-hmm. time. Um, pretty much, I guess, since people started being aware that there was such a thing as a black hole. Mm-hmm. Um, and that didn't really start to appear until the late fifties, actually. Um, oh, that's wait, when they were originally second. discovered. No, sorry. I misspoke. Oh. So I'm looking at all just the next few minutes is all Wikipedia folks. So just like deal with that. <laughs> um, so basically, uh, once um, Einstein comes up with the concept of general relativity, which I also don't super understand very much, but has super big implications for our understanding of space. Um, okay. As a result of that, as a result of the understanding of general relativity, the theoretical concept of a black hole starts to, and that it might exist, um, starts to emerge in like the 19 teens. Okay. Um, and basically this is kind of at that time understood as a part of space, uh, where kind of nothing can get out. Mm -hmm. Um, and then that becomes more kind of mainstream, semi proved, I guess, um, by the late 1950s, uh, and it's not even kind of meaningfully, even at a theoretical level, uh, proven until the 1960s. Oh, okay. Uh, and that's because basically like there's math. So that's, that's kind of the interesting thing about theoretical physics as far as, and, and again, my knowledge of theoretical physics is limited in the extreme, I think is the You're best way to say You're not a physicist? I, I am thought not. you were a physicist. <laughs> I am not. Um, so theoretical physics is mostly kind of like how creative can you be doing math in a sense? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and so math, so there were ways that mathematically kind of the concept of a black hole existed, but in terms of actually finding kind of um, like astral information that suggested that was really happening Mm -hmm. doesn't start to appear until the mid sixties. So the first black hole known as a black hole was, oh, and this has a good tie in. I didn't realize this was known as Cygnus X one and was identified in 1971. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah, um, and the the main ship that we are on in this movie is called the Cygnus. Oh, really? I did not yeah. know that. 
It's cool. <laughs> um, I didn't know any, they, just just as always. I didn't know anybody's name. I didn't know what time <laughs> period we were supposed to be in. I didn't know where we were, other than a black hole area. I didn't know, right. and I didn't track any of that. Well, the name thing was a little bit easier than some of the other movies we've watched recently. But in terms of time and location, they never tell us. So okay, good. Well, that's fair that. enough. Um, and basically what a black hole is, is that a star collapses and creates one. Okay. I'd be curious because if that Wikipedia page says whether or not, um, the black hole takes you to hell or not, but I guess I f- it might not I, say I that. haven't even, I haven't even read the whole page and I guarantee you it doesn't <laughs> say that. One hundred percent guarantee. Um, so, in ter- again, this is a Disney movie, um, and it is kind of of the era as Cat from Outer Space, uh, but is definitely meant to be m- for a more mature audience than Cat from Outer Space. Um, yeah, and this was. We should also say this was a request I guess I don't know if mom formally requested this movie or if she just said this would be a good idea um but she is the one who brought this movie to my attention because I had never heard about it before um and I'll have words with her later about it (laughs) (laughs) and uh basically what this movie was conceived of as originally was that it was going to be a disaster movie that was in the vein of other disaster movies. So have you heard of this term disaster movie? Yeah, there is a movie called Disaster Movie, I think. But yeah, it's all like the um, apocalypse type movies, no? Well, it's not specific. I mean, apocalypse movies are kind of can That's potentially be, they, they can be like a subgenre of the disaster uh, movie. Um, like, but tor- if, okay, then what about like tornado ones or like natural, yeah. that, that type of stuff? Yes, yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah. So, and in the 1970s, that was kind of the, the beginning uh, mm. of these disaster movies. They see a big mm. height in the 70s. So like the very first one um, that is kind of recognized as specifically a disaster movie, because it's the same as like all of these different genres. It's like, okay, so there's the big thing of horror movies or the big Mm -hmm. thing of action movies. And I would Mm -hmm. say that disaster movies generally fall under the action category for the most part. Um, And so uh, the first one that is kind of recognizably recognizably, uh, a disaster movie is something called The Towering Inferno, um, Mm. which I'm pretty sure is actually released like in 1970. Uh. Um, some other ones are the Poseidon Adventure and Airport. And what characterizes these movies is that, of course, you have kind of one location uh, mm-hmm. where the disaster is taking place. And then you have this like massive cast and mm. they are not connected to and each they all other. Get... Oh, okay. So like, mm. for, you know, like in the, uh, the Poseidon Adventure, that's about a cruise ship, if I remember correctly. Oh, wait, let me well, just double like, check this. Well, it almost sounds like all three of these are like one is earth, water, air. Yes, for sure. Um, let me just double check. I would check. never see whatever the airport is. I would not want to see that because I have a feeling that's 
some type of plane disaster, and I don't want to yeah. see that. Yeah, well, now it's too close to home. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but in the 1970s, it was totally fine. Um, yeah, that's well, right. I just, so, I just don't like flying anyway, so I don't need anything else to give me any more anxiety. That's <laughs> fair enough. So the Poseidon Adventure, I was right, is about a cruise ship that has a disaster um, and then various people, and that's the whole thing. The disaster movie is, as I said, like we start out on like different storylines, different sets of people. Like usually mm-hmm. it's like, okay, here's like the crew of the ship and mm-hmm. here's like the family on vacation and here's mm-hmm. the business guy, you know, like it's all that stuff. And none of the people are connected in any way. The The connection comes from the disaster itself. So the story yeah. is driven by the disaster, not by characters, not by like an actual like beginning, middle and end kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and these were really popular in the 70s. And so it's no surprise that Disney also wants to kind of get in on that action. Um, but what I discovered when I was on the Wikipedia page for this particular movie, and I think this helps explain a lot when we get to it. This So it's originally like, oh, well, we've got all these other things. Let's do a disaster movie in space. What can create a disaster in space? Now, you and I know because we've watched enough of this. Anything Literally anything <laughs> can cause a disaster. Like, literally, like, a pinprick in someone's suit is, like, a disaster in space. I mean, because I wouldn't even personally describe, uh, like, space movies as disaster movies in the sense that there's always a disaster in space. Right. And That's true. Like, so I... I that's it's hard for me to like that it, it's a weird choice I'll say is that if you're wanting to do if you're wanting to cash in on that trope of disaster movies that this is that space is where you're choosing yeah I mean I guess but, because so much could just like as we said so much can be a disaster already but true um but so they so the initial concept is about using a black hole as the central like um focus for a disaster movie, but then it goes through an incredible amount of rewrites. And Hmm. so like, whereas I, and I didn't go super closely through all of these ones, but you can imagine this, like the initial premise is there's a group of people in a ship next to a black hole and disaster strikes, you know, like that's it. Right. Yeah. And to me, actually, like with the opening scene and then when we get actually literally get to the black hole is it really the movie did take a hard left turn for me as to what I thought where I thought it was going right almost almost immediately yeah Um, like to me we'll get there I guess but you almost didn't need a cleaner story in my mind <laughs> would yes. be you don't even need that other like devil ship or whatever it was. <laughs> like you don't even need that. The whole uh, tension or disaster of it all could be just the black hole and how to get around right. it, how to, right? Like that's where I thought the movie was going, but. Right. Yeah. You don't, as we've already said, you don't need to add something on top of being yeah. in space. Being in space yeah. is already terrifying. You and don't things need to can add go. a devil. <laughs> Um, but so basically like, um, the, the Disney team assembled to do this movie, 
starts out doing this one thing and then very early on stuff starts getting rewritten uh reimagined and we mm-hmm. end up with something that um is super is weird quite a bit strange <laughs> um and so that's where we are. So just so we know yeah. that going in. Um, I also discovered that this was the first PG movie that Disney ever did. I mean, it was pretty racy. Uh, definitely for Disney. And so, in fact, this is like I they mean, I was developed... sort of joking. But... Well, I mean, a guy gets killed in front of that's our true. eyes. So, um, that's true. And so after this movie... Disney creates, now I can't remember what it is, if it's Touchstone, I think it's Touchstone. Um, They create a whole different kind of like distribution mode for movies that are going to be more kind of like mature audience focused Mm. in comparison to the Disney label itself. Um, This was actually nominated for two Oscars uh, and and unsurprisingly they're in the visual realm. So we have I mean. <laughs> uh, nominated for cinematography and nominated for visual effects. And I will say, uh, I th- I thought the visual effects were actually pretty good. Um, I I mean I I, I it, fair enough. I've not seen enough from that time period to say whether or not these were the best of that time. Um, did I buy it every time they were standing in front of like a red wall of? Whatever it was supposed to be, it looked like they were superimposed. I don't know. It, it. I wasn't always convinced. I think some parts were okay, but maybe I mean, I'm judging you, it too harshly. To me, like some of the stuff that was really good is when they did those long panning shots of the spaceship itself from the outside, um, of like various docking procedures. Those all looked quite oh. good to me. Um, okay. and as well, some of this, so. and some of the stuff, even in the interiors of the ship, like when they get to the bridge and we see all like those screens and stuff, mm. um, that to me looked pretty good. Okay. Um, fair enough. but probably unsurprisingly, uh, this movie was not very well received <laughs> and, uh, I don't think it has gained much of a cult following since, um, no. And part of this is because, and I just saw this when I was refreshing my memory on the Wikipedia page about this movie, um, part of this is because by the mid-70s, people were already getting tired of the disaster movie thing because, like, so many had come out. Um, yeah. And, so, and that's part of why it's being rewritten as well, it, like, to mm. try and kind of add more to it. Mm. Um, but in that adding more, it just creates a lot of weirdness. Uh, which people did not really particularly care for. Yeah, but you nonetheless, know, I would say generally oh. <laughs> less is more in terms of like storylines. Unless I would just say like, yeah, I mean it's fine to have like kind of multiple threads, but the story should be about one idea. Um, and but nonetheless, despite people not really liking it very much, it still made back <laughs> its money, its budget. Mm. In 1979 dollars was $20 million, um, mm-hmm. and its final gross, at least according to IMDb, was $35 million. So, mm-hmm. you know, still performed okay, yeah. uh, but, was, but certainly wasn't 
the blockbuster I think that Disney was hoping for, which goes along with what I said when we talked about the cat from outer space, which is that this is kind of a weird time for Disney. Yeah, um, they were trying to figure their, out what the hell they were doing. <laughs> and their movies were not the things that were making the company money. It was the theme parks that was making the money for them. Yeah. Um, in terms of the cast, uh, I was actually kind of... This was part of the reason I think why mom said we should do this is because actually like all of these people in this are like pretty good actors. Yeah, no, I think she she likes the lady. I know she was telling me that like the lady is the reason she like she looked it up or she found it because of the lady. Oh, okay. I forget what I forget what she told me about the lady already. Okay. But cool. Um, so we'll, and I'm just going through the cast now, according to how they're credit, like in the order they're credited on on IMDb. Mm -hmm. So we'll start with your most favorite guy. Uh, his name is Dr. Hans Reinhardt and he is played by an actor called Maximilian Schell, who was 49 when this movie was released. Um, and he's the mad scientist. He's the villain guy? Okay. Yes. He's the mad scientist. Um, now what I thought was fun about this guy is, so he was born in Vienna in 1930. Uh, and in fact, he has a sister who is also an actor who seems to have remained in Europe and mostly has, and actually has quite a, like, she's got a whole career herself, Hmm. um, uh, in Europe, mostly European stuff. Um, but when you go to his bio on IMDb, the bio says that he's the most successful German-speaking actor in Hollywood. And I'm like, no, that's Arnold that's Schwarzenegger. Hilarious. <laughs> Arnold Schwarzenegger. Did they speak? Okay, uh, I'm going to sound really dumb, but they don't speak. Isn't he Austrian? Does he speak German? Yes. Well, so Maximilian Schell is also Austrian. Oh, you said that. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Well, I said he was mm. born in Vienna. Vienna is Austria. There we go. Yeah. That, um, well, and Austria, Austrians speak German. Um, There's not an Austrian. Okay. I, anyway, whatever. I'm dumb. Um, <laughs> but he probably wrote his own Wikipedia page is my point. Like, Or some like, publicist. <laughs> yeah. Some publicist or somebody wrote it. Um, that was very Which funny. I was, I mean, he's dead now, uh, but like... Um, I found it really, like reading it, I was like, the Arnold Schwarzenegger is like hiding in the wings of this being like, no, no. (laughs) Um, but, uh, I think perhaps the claim here is that, um, Maximilian Schell, unlike Arnold Schwarzenegger, as far as I know, has won a bat a Best Actor Oscar, <laughs> and okay, I'm I pretty do, sure I can, Schwarzenegger I can, has not. Uh, I, unless he won one for Kindergarten Cop, I would be shocked if he has won or even been nominated. Right, exactly. Um, so I think this is where the claim lies. Is that fair enough? Because um, he doesn't claim to be like the most famous um, true. or the most kind of moneyed. He's just saying he's the most successful. And so I think that's, that's what he means. Um, mm-hmm. So because he actually got that Oscar in 1961 uh, for the role that he played in a movie called Judgment at Nuremberg, uh, hmm. which is about the Nuremberg trials. So very serious, very heavy. So mm. to me, 
Like, what's interesting about this is that he's a serious actor. Like, none of his other credits. I, mean, I could tell that from crazy. Me. Like, none of them were fun. None of them were like, oh, this is a fun romp. Like, it's all serious stuff that he's in. Well, maybe he was going through something at this time. Or maybe, <laughs> like, <laughs> or maybe, you know, Disney came to him and he was like, you know what? I've gotten my best picture or my best actor thing. I've done the, the stuff. I want to play the devil now. I want to be in something fun and kooky, like... More power to him. I guess that's probably uh, I would think, but he was. But he also came across as a very serious actor in this to me. Like, oh, he, he took seemed, this super seriously. Yeah, yeah. I was. And I mean, very confused by him, but also a little scared. <laughs> like, I mean, creepy. he he. Lean, I think that's the point. Is like because this is a departure from what we would expect of Disney, even now to some degree, but certainly back then, I think that, and because all of these actors would have been quite recognizable at the time, um, that's like part of the telegraphing to the audience. Like, this is a serious guy. You've seen him in serious things. This is a serious movie, you know? And he's Um, seriously the devil, so shut up. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So anyway, I just was like, wow, this guy, and I... Had I didn't know him from anything, like I didn't recognize him. Um, yeah, but I, I was like, wow, that's kind of fun. Here's this other, he's like the pre Schwarzenegger in a sense, yeah. um, but much more serious. Yeah. Uh, the, the other person that again, who was meant to tell the audience that this movie should be taken seriously, uh, is a character called Dr. Alex Durant, played by Anthony Perkins, who was Gotta 47. Love that. I love. As soon as I saw him, I was like, oh, there he is, Norman Bates. Um, I know. I mean, he's so recognizable as Norman Bates, and I, it's, I kind of, it's very weird to see him in other stuff. <laughs> like, I know, I know. Um, but he was in other things, namely, and I'm saying this movie specifically for our mother, Friendly Persuasion, um, yeah. which was his, he, that predates um, being Norman Bates in Psycho. Um, okay. And then later, this would be like the early to mid 70s is the first version of Murder on the Orient Express. He was oh, in that. I don't think I've ever seen that. It's pretty slow moving. Um <laughs> But it's 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 got its charms, I guess I would say, because yeah. it has a lot of really good actors from that era, and like the production value is really excellent. So it's got okay. some of that. Um, what I didn't know is that Psycho had a two, three, and four. Yikes! I can't imagine they were good. <laughs> I mean, he appeared in all of them as Norman I Bates. I definitely didn't know that, and. Well, now I've got questions, and now I've got movies I want to watch. But, like, <laughs> that is that is shocking. I didn't really know that either. Or if I did know that, I definitely didn't think he was in them. Yeah. So, I mean, he's interesting, too, because he he did seem to have, like, you know, this career that people took seriously, but then there was this, like, wackiness of the psycho thing um, that also carried throughout his career. The other thing that I was, I looked this up specifically because he died when he was only 60 mm-hmm. and he died in the early nineties. So I was like, something seems, 
I gotta find out. And I was right in what my suspicions were, which is he um, died of AIDS-related pneumonia in 1992. Um, yeah, it is sad. And he, and then I, so I learned more about him because of this. So I guess in those early kind of Norman Bates days, he was, there was always like whispers about him being gay and he was linked to a number of different other kind of like, uh, male actors at the time. And then like sometime in the eighties, and even the Wikipedia page puts it this way. He starts like experimenting with women. Um, hmm. And then kind of the remain. And I think he even gets, he does get married like later in life uh, to a woman. Um, and so that, that in itself, I'm like, why isn't anyone making this a biopic? This seems like incredibly yeah. interesting in a lot of different ways. Um, well, I mean, if you start making it, you know, biopics about every actor that like wasn't able to come out that you're going to be making a lot. <laughs> well, sure. But I mean, specifically someone who was in a quintessential film of film, which is psycho. Yeah. <laughs> and then yeah. is one of the first people to kind of like publicly die of AIDS. Like, um, that, that is something. That is a story I feel very sure of. Um, yeah, but maybe he wanted it more thing. like under wraps or, you know, maybe he was more private. Well, definitely. At, I mean, obviously in the 60s and 70s, he was more private. Um, but it wasn't a secret that he died of AIDS. And, and in yeah. the early 90s, the likelihood that he contracted it as a result of some sort of same-sex contact probably would have been fairly high. Um, yeah. because, or he was, you know, like an intravenous drug user. Like there's, there's lots of yeah. things, but like, it's hard for us to, to think now in 2021 about, or, or to remember like 30 years ago, what it meant to die of an AIDS related disease in 1992, like, and how big of a deal that would have been, um, yeah. to do, to do well, publicly. Right. Like, yeah. Well, I mean, to be fair, I was seven and you were... 11 so we weren't right. quite up on the whole like happenings of the world no um but anyway so that's him then we have captain dan holland who's played by robert forster who's 38 um mm -hmm. in keeping with my elephant facts about various actors we learn about his dad was an elephant trainer um which huh. is cool um and then he was a guy who played football all throughout high school and then got a scholarship um, to college and then played football in college. And that, like, when I saw that, I was like, oh, yeah, he does look like he has that look of, like, kind of square jaw, sort of broad shoulder man. Mm, yeah. Um, and then jaw, after... shoulder man. Uh, then after... Finishing college, he decides to turn his hand to acting. Mm -hmm. um, and I guess one of his main kind of claims to fame is after he does this, like the immediate next movie that he does is called Alligator. Um, uh, which, I want to see that. <laughs> I don't know yeah. what that is, but I want to see it. It's what I just, what I was able to kind of deduce is that apparently this is like considered a, cl a cult classic within the horror genre oh, this shoot. alligator I gotta thing see it. 
Um, so there's that. And then his career kind of started to dwindle during the 80s and 90s, but then was resurrected in 1997 when Quentin Tarantino did Jackie Brown. And you know how Tarantino loves to like bring back people um, yes. from the past. And he had liked this guy because he was like he a lot of the people in this were similar. I think, you know, it's funny to think about these different kind of like eras of, or generations of actors. Like most of these people were in like a thousand Westerns and stuff <laughs> like mm-hmm. um, and he was like that. So Tarantino clearly like remembered him from those days and then mm-hmm. was like, we'll get you into this movie. Mm-hmm. Um and he was in one of the different psychos. <laughs> so that's very funny. Um, and most recently, he appeared in the kind of newest iteration of Twin Peaks. So he's still alive hmm. and kicking and still taking roles, as far as I could cool. deduce. Um, next is a character named Lieutenant Charles Pizer, played by an actor named Joseph Bottoms, who is the youngest in this group. He's, he was only 25 hmm. at the time. Um, and his thing is like leading us, leading up to this, he was in a bunch of different TV movies, none of which mm. I had heard of, but I think, um, like he would have been quite recognizable in 1979 to mm-hmm. this audience, right? Cause they would have seen him in these TV movies. And then later in life, he's on, um, days of our lives mm. for about a month, um, Then there's like a big stretch of time where he doesn't have any credits listed on IMDb between 1999 and 2013. And then like 2013, there's like a little blip of stuff. And then again, there's a big long break. And then it's like a couple years ago, it looks like he started doing stuff again. Um, Interesting. Yeah, I don't know. He was one of those people where like I looked at him the whole movie being like, I'm sure I've seen you in something else. And then when I was looking at his credits, I was like, I don't recognize any of these things. So I don't know why I had that impression, but I really felt strongly like I'd seen him, but I don't think I had. Um, Next we get to Dr. Kate McRae, which is the actor that mom was speaking to you about, Yvette Mignou, um, who was 37 at the time of release. And um, from what I could surmise of her credits, it seems like she actually was in quite a few um, sci-fi movies. Uh, The breakout for her was The Time Machine, which is based on the H.G. Wells novel, um, Mm. which came out in 1960. Mm. Um, And she would have been quite young in that. I think she was only like 18 or something. Oh, wow. uh, When she was in that. Um... And then she was also in something called The Neptune Factor. Um, Mm. I don't really know what mom would have been watching or thinking about to come across this woman. Maybe she was talking about Time Machine or something. Or both of those movies, The Time Machine and The Neptune Factor? Or is one of them a show? No, both of them are movies. Maybe it's one of those. I forget what she was... She told me, I'm sure, but I don't remember um yeah because she has probably like the fewest credits of anybody of this group hmm. like she and again we see this a lot um and I think I would I'm comfortable now saying that like 
women in particular seem to have this arc where they like rocket to the top quite young, like in their Mm -hmm. lives. And then they have like a period of maybe 10 years where they're like in a lot of stuff. And then it's like, then slowly stuff starts not showing up as much, not showing up as much. And then, then they like kind of officially end their career at a given time, even though they're quite like still, like they're still alive and kicking and whatever. And their male peers would are continuing, but they're like, I'm not doing that anymore. Oh, Um, well, I mean, I think (laughs) it's funny that you say you feel comfortable saying that. I think that's pretty well like the story in Hollywood for a lot of people. There are certain people obviously that, uh, you know, have been able to overcome that slump of turning old in Hollywood as a woman. (laughs) Um, But really very few, like uh, what's, um, you know, Meryl Streep has been able to transcend that. And certain other like very famous or very good actors have been been able to transcend that. But generally there's (laughs) there's two types of roles for women. There's like young, pretty, ingenue, we like you, or there's like old crone lady <laughs> mom boring yeah. get out of here yeah. you know yeah. so yeah and then yeah. then some people don't want to do the whole like mom deal or the whole like old hag thing <laughs> so right. they're like I'd rather just be done I'm living it in my life I don't want to be an old hag <laughs> but it's happening anyway um yeah and I mean you just have to like either lean into it and become like full swamp witch or just like <laughs> it's just like uh I don't know keep pretending and keep getting plastic surgery or something but yeah. like those are the only two choices swamp witch or cute <laughs> great perfect <laughs> um well and what I meant to say is like I feel like I see this career pattern more the further back in time we go, right? Like, yeah, yeah. Um, more, more and more recently, women are able to like get into their 40s and 50s and still have like a decent career and even do cool things. But like that, that's yeah. a pretty recent development. Well, and there's more female directors who are like creating roles and writing stories right. about women that are right. not just like 10 year olds. Right. Um, So her last credit is in 1992. Um, Now, admittedly, that still means her career spans 30 years. Um, But nonetheless, you know, because like because she hit so young, like I said, she was 18 in her breakout role. 30 -hmm. years later, she's only 48. There's plenty like there's plenty of gas in the tank. Right. But um, for whatever reason... 30 years in Hollywood, though, at that time was probably yeah, exhausting. that's probably a lot, <laughs> indeed. So I hope, uh, Ms. Mimiu, wherever you are, I hope that you have enjoyed your respite <laughs> from Hollywood. Um, next, we have a character named Harry Booth, which was played by Ernest Borgnine, who was 62 at the time of, the re- of release. Now... I don't know about you, but I had always operated under the belief that Ernest Borgnine was like a comic actor. Well, and I don't know if that's just because the last name Borgnine is funny. Oh, see, I always thought he was like super serious because I thought that name sounded like 
Ernest Borgnine in. <laughs> you know, it sounds very like epic almost. Um, yes. Or um, I don't know why I think that, but I don't know much about him. Mo- Mom did mention him also when I was talking about this movie. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah. I. It turns out like this was a lot of people who I'd heard of, but did didn't turn out to know anything about. <laughs> um, <laughs> and he's he's probably the major ver- example of that. Um, mm. Because I was like, oh, Ernest Borgnine. That's like that funny guy. Um, uh. And there is something that makes me think of why I made that connection, um, mm. which is that he played Commander Quentin McHale in McHale's Navy. Um, yeah, which is something I've never seen. I oh, I sort of, I'm sure I've seen like an episode on Nick at Night at one time. Yeah. Um, yeah. But because that's like all I ever knew, I then presumed he was a funny guy. But in reality, yeah. he was just a very good actor. Um, he, well, he's also goofy looking. I mean, I he get does him, look sort funny. Of, yeah. He has sort of a, um, a <laughs> this might be an insult to him, probably it is. He has sort of a Rodney Dangerfield energy yeah, about him. Yeah, yeah. Like kind of like goofy eyes. Especially in this movie. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so he actually uh, served in the Navy um, hmm. after finishing high school and as a result served during World War II um, hmm. and then came to acting kind of once he finished his uh, military career. Uh, mm. And I think I remember reading he was in the Navy for, like, 10 years. So he did, like, oh, a wow. solid bit of time there. Um, he won... He also is a best actor. He won an Oscar in 1955. I can't remember now for what performance that was. Hmm. Um, and then after that, played Quentin McHale, McHale's Navy. Um, his career lasted 61 years. I mean, he was just That's in good. a bunch of crap. Um, most of it serious, which again was a real surprise for me. Um, uh, I included this for you. He was briefly married to Ethel Merman. Uh, That's pretty funny. Uh, which is great. And then I think his like final credit was that he did um, the voice of Mermaid Man in SpongeBob SquarePants before he died. Interesting. I don't really know SpongeBob well enough to know that character, but that's interesting. No, I don't really know SpongeBob either. I'm I think we're both way too old to have like gotten caught in that particular yeah. web. Um, Though a lot of older people did like it too, but yes, I it was just not my jam. Yeah. Um the final two little uh roles we should talk about, but of course, no role is too small. Um <laughs> is the two robots. Well, there are many robots in this, but the two that most matter. The best robots. Yes, this, the nice these robots. might have been my favorite people in the movie. <laughs> <laughs> uh, they do have a lot of quips and yeah. jibes, which I enjoy. The first one is Vincent, and that's V period I period N period cent period. And that stands that. for vital information necessary centralized. Did they say that in this movie? No, they didn't. I did not get that. They definitely didn't say that. I got that from Wikipedia, and I was like, oh, that helps a lot. (laughs) That does, and that is, like, really strange if we were supposed to just, like, figure that out. Um, No, I think we, because it's not essential that we know that, but that's what it is. That's interesting. Um, 
And that is voiced by Roddy McDowell, who was 51 at the time of release. We've spoken about Roddy McDowell before. He's been in at least two other things we've talked about. Yeah. I couldn't remember um, what, though. I've, I know he, he was, was definitely in Planet, in Planet of, the of the Apes. I can't remember what the, the other one was now, but we've definitely talked about him at least twice. Yeah. I know that for yeah. a fact. Um, and then the other one is B period O period B, Bob. Um, and, and what did that one stand for? That stands for Biosanitation Battalion. And he did say that. Okay, I didn't get that thing. either. Um, and that's played by an actor or voiced by an actor, I should say, uh, called S- Slim Pickens, who was 60 at the time of release. Um, and as soon that's as I heard his... a great name. <laughs> well, sure it is. But also like... Um, I think it's probably because he started out as a rodeo clown. That was his first job. Yeah, that's hilarious. (laughs) I love that. Um, he was a rodeo clown for 20 years. Um, and I worked out like he started doing rodeoing when he was only 12 years old. Um, because he's from like rural California and interesting. And so he gets California is, is big on rodeos. Yeah. Um, So he started out like kind of being in the rodeo, but then at some point he transitions. So he leaves being a rodeo clown when he's in his early 30s, basically. Interesting. And then transitions into acting. Um, And as you would expect from someone named Slim Pickens. Now, I have to assume that Slim Pickens was his rodeo clown name. Uh, you know what I mean? Like, I think maybe I suppose like, there's I mean, no way like how else could name. there's no way somebody's parents no, said that's his given name. I think someone, <laughs> I think when the when his mother birthed him, she was like, hmm, he's so cute. Let's call him Slim Pickens. No, no, I, mean, I just I just looked him up. His real name is Lewis Burton Lindley Jr., um, mm, that's so, kind of like slim picking. <laughs> <laughs> um, but he has a very like you've heard this guy's voice before. Um, I know of I know of him because I think I did know of him because of Doctor Strangelove. I feel like that question about this actor has been in like family trivia's that we've done. Sure. Like that sounds familiar. But because he has this very kind of recognizable um, countryfied voice. Uh, he unsurprisingly, most of his career was spent in Westerns, both TV and movies. Mm-hmm. Um, also because of his age, like I said, like at this point, if you're 60 in 1979, you were in like a thousand Westerns. Um, yeah, there just were so many of them. Um, and in terms of how he gets onto the Disney radar, he appears in the Apple Dumpling Gang movie, uh, which came Mm -hmm. out, I'm pretty sure in 1975. So, uh, and this is a few years after that. So that's my guess on how that all transpires. Interesting. So that's basically all we need to know in terms of who's in this and like, what are they doing? Um, yeah. Now, the movie itself mm. here's where a, we get into a rocky spot. <laughs> it's a bit of a challenge. Um, so, were you confused when at the beginning yes. there's just music playing yes. and it was a black screen? Yes, <laughs> yes. I literally, 
was like, is my TV broken? God damn it. Because I actually, I actually had two thoughts. I was like, ugh, is this like so clever because it starts off black because it's a black hole? Ugh. And then I was like, Wait, I mean, definitely, yes. <laughs> That's but definitely was, part of it. And then I was like, this is going on too long. So I like on my phone, I like scrubbed through a little bit to see if like anything would show up. I scrubbed to like 20 minutes and I was like, oh, so my TV is not broken. I was like, all right, I'll go back and see what the hell's happening. And then at like two minutes 30, finally, I saw some writing and I was like, ugh, this movie's making me mad already. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I similarly had this moment of doubt and I was like, no, you just clicked play and your screen <laughs> had a picture. Like, yeah. this is not broken. This is how, this is an intentional choice. Um, but also what I learned from the Wikipedia page about this movie is this is one of, I think this might be the last movie that's made with an overture before the credits even begin, um, mm. which is what this is. And I will say I did like the music. It was pretty like jaunty in a way that I yeah. enjoyed. Um, but two and a half minutes, like a solid two and a half minutes is what it was. And I was like, wowee. Um, like, like I like it. Listen, I, I like an overture and I know that the reasons they've taken it out is because of people's impatience and, and I get that and I can be patient through an overture, but like fully black screen to the point where it's like, you, you truly can't tell if it's a mistake or not that, (laughs) that I, I, I am not into. I feel like there should be some semblance of or even just over the damn screen just write the word overture I don't know like just right I don't know the full black screen thing I get I get it for this movie and I get the choice but it's misleading for a full two and a half minutes (laughs) (laughs) I mean I I would say I overall enjoyed it um (laughs) But I, I think, like, if I were in a theater, I would start getting worried that something had gone wrong. Um, yeah. But once the overture is over and we get through the credits, where we ultimately end up is on the bridge of a ship called the Palomino, um, which, you again, you wouldn't know the name Palomino until quite a bit later in the movie. Um, I never knew it. Well, congratulations. <laughs> You you know it now. Um, And on the ship, we are introduced to a variety of different characters. Um, One of the most colorful being Vincent, the Mm -hmm. tiny robot, Mm -hmm. um, who definitely is meant to look a bit like R2-D2, Um, but unlike R2-D2, I did like this aspect of Vincent, which I can't remember if you notice in the very first scene, but later you do. He can float around. Oh yeah. I don't know if you do notice that right away, but yeah, that is cool. And he also looks, go ahead. No, I don't know. Go say what you're going to say. I was also like, um, Vincent has a look about him, like, especially like that eye face part of Vincent (laughs) Mm -hmm. um looks quite a bit like the precursor which of course it is to the robot that they have in space camp 
which I'm pretty sure is another Disney movie, but that's from quite a bit later in the 80s. Hmm. Um, and also a bit like Johnny Five from Short Circuit. Um, I don't know any of those things you're talking about, but... He, oh, don't worry. Well, I'll make us watch them at some point. Oh, no. Um, <laughs> the, but he was cute. I feel like he was a cute, and um, I tend to like the robots in these movies or the um, androids. <laughs> I tend to like them more than the rest of the people, um, except Fair. for the mean robots, obviously. But right. um, yeah, I liked I liked the robot. And yeah, I liked and the he's look of it. he's like the comic relief. He's got a but. He always is saying quips. Um, and like aphorisms and stuff. Um, that's Mm -hmm. his thing. And he's the one. So like when we come into this bridge, what we're seeing is Vincent, they've all discovered that there's this massive black hole that they're passing. And Vincent says that it's the largest black hole kind of like ever to be cataloged, um, Mm -hmm. by an earth ship. Uh, I also really liked how they were having the crew kind of like floating up and down. Oh, oh my God. Yes. The floating (laughs) aspect. Like, first of all, first of all, they all kind of flew in right into the room to start with. And, you know, we've watched a lot of space stuff, obviously. I don't know that we've ever watched one where they like have a lot going on with gravity stuff. Because I feel like it, in Star Trek, in, um, I'm trying to think of the other stuff we've watched, but, you know, they're always in space, but they're right. all walking around. There's right. not a lot of, besides, okay, uh, Sandra Bullock in... Um, in Gravity. <laughs> in Gravity, obviously. They talk about Gravity in that one. Um, but this one, it was funny because the way they do it is like, <laughs> very funny and then when they're all standing quote unquote you can tell that they're all actually standing but they're like okay just like bounce around a little bit we're not going to show your feet it's going to look like you're floating but you're just bouncing that's how yeah. I read it yeah there was a lot of um kind of it was a mixed bag I guess I would say but it's but what's weird about this is like they show it in this one scene as like gravity yeah but then they do and then kind of it's gone <laughs> Yeah, because, you know, another another reason why I think they probably don't do it in movies as much or they do it in, like, very specific, like, oh, in this place or this, like, transfer point you do it is because an entire movie of anti-gravity or weightlessness, that's a lot of special effects. That's a lot of... um, It's incredibly costly even now to do that. Um, so they, I mean, I thought when they did it, it looked fairly convincing, but it was like, yeah, it's, it was just a very piecemeal, like sometimes like people were sitting, like Alex is sitting in a chair while everybody else is like, quote unquote, floating around the room. And I'm like, how can he be sitting in a chair though? Like the chair is floating, um, but yeah, yeah, no, it's true. It's true because, and it definitely looked better. I'll give it, you know, I was giving it crap before for not having good visual effects but it definitely looked better than the uh flying that happened in uh the cat one (laughs) cat from outer space yeah cat from outer space (laughs) for sure for sure um so 
they discover this black hole, which according to the movie's world is the, quote, most destructive force in the universe. Um, I'm not sure if that's really true or not, um, but that's the premise. And this will this is important for how this story works. Um, and more to the point, less interesting than the fact of a black hole, which you have to assume they've probably run across before. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're saying that there's this ship that is stationary just like kind of like right next to the black hole mm-hmm. and it's not being pulled in, which is a real surprise because basically what a black hole is, and I guess this is why it might be considered the most destructive force in the universe, is that it's a big gravity well, which means that it right. sucks like all this stuff into it, right? Yeah. Um, so the idea that there could be this ship sort of like just on its edge and not being pulled in is exceptionally unusual. And so, um, they're like, okay, well, let's try and figure out what the deal is with this ship. And they discover (laughs) that it's the mistake. P.S. You should, if you're in space already, never investigate anything. No, not even in space. I'm just going to. Baseline, like, (laughs) don't investigate shit, people. Like, if you are in, if you're inside and you hear a noise outside, don't go investigate. Never go. You will die. You will die. Don't investigate. Just mind your business. (laughs) Keep going. It's always, it's always a killer or a mad scientist. There is never anything in between, or like a wild animal or something. Because truly, like, if you're saying that this, that the black hole is the most destructive thing, you've said all this that you've just said, and you've got got a ship that's not being pulled in, but everything should be pulled in, then clearly something is amiss. That ship is evil. There's a devil on board. (laughs) Don't go near it. It's got a bumper sticker on its back window. It says devil on board. (laughs) And a little picture of little horns coming off. And you're like, better stay stay away. away. Um, so they discover like they run the ship's configuration through their computer and they discover that it's the USS Cygnus uh, which has been missing for 20 years and Kate no they should not Kate the one lady in the story um, is like, that's the ship that my dad went missing on. So oh, she's got no. this straight away. She's got a personal investment in doing mm. this investigation. And <sighs> so they decide that they're going to come in closer and investigate what's going on with the Cygnus. Now, as one might expect, as they move closer to the black hole, the gravity well of the black hole starts to pull them into it. And so they have to like do all they're like all this trouble starts happening um and they're like being sloshed around the ship <laughs> um and like various like different like steam is bursting out of stuff. I didn't totally like know what was happening. Um but then all of a sudden they kind of like get closer 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 and then they stop. And Kate says it's as though they're in the eye of the storm. But Mm -hmm. ultimately, they keep getting pulled 
in. And mm-hmm. so various people have to start like repairing stuff. Vincent goes out of the ship and is repairing something um, from the outside. Um, but then he almost gets lost, but he's almost pulled in himself um, into the black hole. But this is important mainly because it's the opportunity for us to learn that Kate and Vincent can communicate with ESP. Yeah, I do like that. This is something that is not explained at all. <laughs> um, like, why does Kate? Why is Kate telepathic, and how can a machine be telepathic with a human being? No idea. Mm. Um, but this becomes important for later, so we'll mm. just put that in our back pocket. <laughs> um, so they ultimately manage to get out of the pull of the black hole, but the mm-hmm. ship, the Palomino, is badly damaged. And they've already passed the Cygnus in this whole kind of kerfuffle that they just had. And when they're coming back away from the black hole, the Cygnus, which had appeared as though it were abandoned, all of a sudden lights up like this whole big, it kind of looks like a space station rather than a spaceship, I would say. Mm -hmm. Um, And they're like, oh, intriguing. And I'm like, no, it isn't. It's terrifying. (laughs) Like, um, I was immediately like, this is a ghost ship. Don't go on the ghost ship. Um, And Kate is like looking out the window at the space station. And she's like, look, I see people on there. And that will become important later as well. Oh, yeah, yeah. So they ultimately decide, like, the ship has been, the Palomino has been damaged to such a degree that they're like, well, we don't really know what this Cygnus thing is all about, but we do need to fix our ship. So we're going to land on there, and presumably there will still be, like, the materials we need Mm-hmm. to fix our ship on this thing. And if it's abandoned, certainly we can take anything we want. If people are still on here, maybe we help them somehow. You know, like that's the general thought process. Mm-hmm. So they land on the Cygnus. And this is where I did think the visual effects were quite good because they do this. They do a couple different like really long panoramic shots of what the Cygnus space station looks like. Um, and they have some good shots of like the Palomino landing in the docking port thing. Hmm. Um, and it was all like, particularly because, and this I think is also relevant to kind of the look of this, um, Star Wars, the original, uh, A New Hope comes out in 1977. Hmm. And that was... I don't know enough about visual effects, but I did specifically look up like when it came out relative to this because there was quite a lot of similarity in a lot of ways, particularly Mm -hmm. about the robots that we're soon going to see. And so Star Wars had already like revolutionized the use of um, computer technology and miniatures for visual effects. And Mm. so initially, apparently Disney approached, um, it's called like Imagination Studios, and those are the people who do the visual effects for Star Wars. And they had approached them to do the visual effects for this, but uh, they didn't have time because they were still in the midst of doing their first three movies. So 
Disney then did this slightly alternative way of doing visual effects at the time, uh, which again, I thought was pretty good. I was like, oh, this is really quite like convincing to me. Um, When they finally do dock on the Cygnus, they come out of the airlock and immediately are attacked by what look like stormtroopers from Star Wars, but instead of being in white, they're all red, painted Mm -hmm. in red. Um, And you're like, what are these things? And why are they attacking them? What's going on? And it's particularly confusing because as the crew kind of like moves deeper into the ship, nobody's there. So... It's like this weird thing of like they're immediately attacked and then they get out of the range of that initial attack and then they're in this massive space station with no one. Yeah. Which is terrifying. They should leave at this point. (laughs) Yeah. Um, What they do instead is get on a monorail to go to the bridge. Yeah. I, at this point, I was like, why are they on a ride? What's happening? Like, <laughs> I mean, it is a Disney movie. That's so true. It's it really was like something. I was like, is this what um, Space Mountain was based on? This movie? What's happening? Like, that's what it felt like. Yeah. I was. That's why I kept calling it a monorail, even though yeah. it did have two rails. I was like, oh, it's like <laughs> the monorail at Disney. It really did um, seem like a Disney ride. Yeah. So then the like the little train car brings them to the bridge of the Cygnus. And this was like this little scene as they're walking in to me was really like quite a good special effect. I'm not sure. It sounds like it didn't necessarily convince you, but like we go into this room that looks like it's kind of like, um, spherical in a way like has this big open window at the front of it Mm -hmm. and you see like what appear to be human bodies in like cloaks standing at different levels like different heights and like you see the you see like space and the black hole through the window but then you also see like all of these screens like thousands and thousands of screens Hmm. um I may not remember this. (laughs) I mean, it's only a short, like, what? Like, 10-second, like, clip Uh, of, like, here's the bridge. Like, the reveal of the bridge, right? Mm -hmm. Um, But I was like, whoa. (laughs) uh, It looked very convincing to me. But what I also learned when I was doing my Googling around is that most of that, like, the bridge images was actually, like, paintings. Oh, interesting. Like, so they painted different stuff. Um, and I I couldn't tell if they meant like miniatures or what, but, um, rather than like trying to make something look like a computer screen with like practical effects, they just Mm -hmm. painted stuff to look like screens. And I was like, honestly, I was like, that holds up much better in the 40 plus years since this has happened than if you had, like, quote unquote, built a computer, you know, like built yeah. something to be like, this is what a computer is. Yeah. Um, it just, I was like, oh yeah, it's this like incredible amount of screens. And that to me felt now that we are in an age of a thousand screens, I was like, oh yeah, that's <laughs> like totally 
totally exactly what it would look like. Yeah. Um, so they enter into this big kind of cavernous bridge with all of these seeming like people or something working. And Kate like speaks up to the group and she's like, I- I'm Kate McRae. My father used to like be on this ship. I'm not sure if he was the captain or what, but he was mm-hmm. somebody who I think he was. And no one responds to her. Like everyone just keeps going on their work. And, she, and mm-hmm. it's like, okay, well, this is like a little awkward. Okay. <laughs> um, and then who should appear but Maximilian, who's the scary red robot? Yeah. <laughs> um, so do you want to describe what the scary red robot looks like? To the best of your ability? Uh, well, he looks like, he looks like Stormtrooper-ish. That's sort of like the other ones. But his head is more like angular. Like his helmet Mm -hmm. thing is more Mm -hmm. like, it goes out more like a little bit. Like, um, I, I don't know how to describe it that well, to be honest. But he's very intimidating looking. Like yeah, he's much. He's much like big, like the stormtroopers are quite clearly like humans in costumes made yeah. to look like armor. This I think actually must have been some sort of like robotronic thing oh. that they created. I don't think there's a person inside there, oh. as far as I can tell. Um, but he's like much like broader than the rest. Um, I feel like aren't his like quote-unquote eyes isn't that like a red light that sometimes shines in a menacing way yeah I mean I feel like I remember at the end you see human eyes in there but maybe that's like supposed to be that's when yeah that's you're about to give something away that we can't get to yet um but no during this he's just I didn't even get it I didn't even know that was giving anything away (laughs) (laughs) um and I think yeah Maximilian can also float Right? Oh, yeah. I think that's how he gets around. And I'm sorry to keep calling all the robots he, because that isn't appropriate to... But they're voiced by men. They're they're voiced by men, and Maximilian is a man's name, and that's what this one is called. So I I apologize for ascribing them gender when I don't think they actually have it. Um, But... From the start, this inanimate object is extremely intimidating. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and, uh, and like, is, like, kind of bullying these human beings. And all of a sudden, like, Dr. Reinhardt kind of, like, emerges from the shadows. And he's, like, I forget exactly what he says, but he's basically, like, Maximilian, do be kind to our guests or something. <laughs> <laughs> Something very mad scientist yeah, is what he says. Um, and then he's, like, very apologetic. He's like, oh, I'm so sorry. You know, we haven't had people here for 20 years. And then he says to Kate, of course I knew your father, and I'm so sorry to tell you this, but he died because, um, you know, 20 him. years ago. Well, he doesn't say that he killed him yet, Amy. <laughs> um, he says, like... He died because there was a problem. Our ship got damaged. And in that crisis, your father died. Um, but because there was all this like crisis, I sent the rest of the crew back to Earth on like the escape. 
pods or something. And everyone's mm-hmm. like, well, but they never came back. <laughs> they never so got to Earth. you failed. Um, and he's like, oh, what a surprise. I like, <laughs> I don't know what happened. And, you know, when someone who appears out of the shadows says, and I don't know what like happened. A, yeah. When, yeah, like there's, I'm going to just say it. There's nothing trustworthy about him from the jump. Like he He's is, already got crazy hair that looks like his hands have been run through it like a thousand times. He's got crazy um, eyes happening. He's got like. Yeah a big scary beard like <laughs> and no offense to people with like kooky hair and crazy beards but like he's he's not trustworthy <laughs> that's all I'll it's say. like His whole if vibe you've got is not trustworthy if you've got crazy hair or a big bushy beard or you're just <laughs> like a very like big kind of uh me- potentially menacing feeling person usually what you do is try to minimize that right like you're like <laughs> I'm going to make up for it by having a jolly laugh or um, making sure I don't have crazy eyes or whatever. But he, like, doesn't do that at all. Um, Yeah, or, like, making sure I don't talk about someone dying, like, within the first minute. Right. And, like, I know that she was looking for her dad and, like, I get it. But, uh, yeah, he just, he does not, he does not come across, he does not come across as trustworthy at all. (laughs) No, there's always something weird about him. And um, part of that is, so he explains that there was this like crisis 20 years ago and that's why he wasn't able to return. Um, And he also says like, oh, these things that are walking around that you see that are like in cloaks and whatever, um, those are robots that I made to keep me company and to help run this ship. And you're like... That does not help his case. You're like, but your expertise is... You're like an astrophysicist. That's Uh, not like a robot-making guy. Like, how did you get that skill? You know, like... I've got a lot of questions now because I'm not sure I even understood that this was what was happening here. But why, there were so many other options they could have had, it seems like, over a 20-year period to get help to them if they were truly, right. like, stuck in this place. Um, well, that's the whole thing is that all of them are like, well, the crew never came no one ever like because the Cygnus was just lost, and they say that yeah. in this in that opening bit where they're like, no communication, no one knows what happened, it just disappeared, right? Yeah. Um, and so yeah, there's all these different things that suggest, and particularly like when they land on the Cygnus now, the Cygnus seems to be functioning totally fine so it's like so okay you had this disastrous situation but like once you fixed it however long that now (laughs) yeah why didn't you say here i am come get me (laughs) right um but that's the whole point is that so in addition to explaining that he's built this like robot family just out of uh some kind of necessity or perversion or we don't know what yeah he he also explains because they're like oh well now that we've like found you um we can like get you back to earth 
right? Um, Mm -hmm. And he's like, I don't want to go back to Earth. And (laughs) they're like, what are you talking about? And he's like, don't worry about it. I'm in the midst of very serious sciencing here. And so I will permit you to repair your ship. I have various like supplies for you to do that and you're welcome to have them. Um, but I'm like deeply involved for the past 20 years. I've been investigating this black hole that I'm sitting right next to. And so like, that's where my head's at. And so like, no, I'm not going to go with you to earth. My research is too important, but because they haven't seen this guy in 20 years, he offers to give them a tour of this ship and in particular what people are really interested in is how is he not being pulled into the black hole want to find out why he's not getting pulled into that black hole want to figure out what's truly going on in this crazy movie find out next week with us on see you next week in space thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of see you next week in space. This is a production by Amy and Sarah Walsh with artwork provided by Riley Brown. If you'd like to learn more about our show, please check us out at seeyounextweekinspace.com or follow us on Instagram at seeyounextweekinspace. Until the next one.